fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to F Triple G BT. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology, and we make it a reality. We do that. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Dan, it is so awesome to be here. I love that we've uh, picked another of, of my choices. Um, and people may pick up a theme of kids movies with a lot of tech and a lot of fun. Yeah, this is it. This is one of yours. I'm very excited about this. I had considered this a while ago, uh, and I didn't act on it. And I'm so glad that you watched it and you insisted that we do it. This is going to be a great movie. I'm excited about it. Uh, but I'm also excited to have our other member of the Brain Trust, our enigmatic engineer, Ben Seepser. Ben, where are you broadcasting from this week? Dan, this week I'm at the current or maybe former headquarters of PAL here in Silicon Valley. And there's all of these glowing blue-green pods being collected from seemingly all over the country. And they're going to this giant structure. And I'm I'm getting really nervous here, Dan. This does not seem good. All right, Ben, you got to keep it together. We got to get through this episode. But I'm glad that you're embedded inside of PAL because we need that insider information to figure out what's going on here. And of course, we're talking about Mitchells and the machines. And I'm going to give you a quick little summary here. Actually, you guys might need to help me with this uh, if I don't do this any justice. But here, I'm going to give it a shot. Here we go. So this is about a Silicon Valley pioneer who decides that his AI-powered assistant pal is no longer good enough, and he decides to create AI-powered robots that will do everything for humans. So he moves away from the voice-activated phone into robots that will do everything. Now, this hurts the AI's feelings, and that that AI uh, phone decides to take it out on the entire human race by blasting them off into space. And luckily, the perfectly ordinary Mitchell family with their cinephile daughter, Katie, and their female avoiding son, Aaron, are there to save the entire planet. So, Denon, I'm going to ask you, first of all, would you add anything or take anything away from that summary? Uh, and what were your first impressions of this movie? Well, you know, Dan, only adding one thing, I'm surprised that you missed it. Key to the success of the entire mission is the family dog. Um, we don't want to <laughs> leave out the Munchy. dog. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Fair enough. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the family has some unique characteristics, which we, I'm sure we'll get into. I just absolutely love the movie, Dan. Um, as you know, um, I'm a fan of zombie apocalypses. I've thought long and hard about the physics of surviving the apocalypse. I was really excited to see the techniques used by this family to survive the machine apocalypse. Um, I've always been very, very skeptical and cynical of all of the AI takes over the world and kills us movies. Um, this one was way more believable. I'm like, oh, yeah, that is the mistake we would make as humans. Um, <laughs> so a lot of positive things here because we win in the end, but a lot of really weirdly good negative things. I don't know how to say that, but just excited about the whole movie, Dan. But I think you're right. That's how I felt about it as well. There are some strangely negative things, but it, it makes us think about how we treat our AI and how we treat those items around us. Uh, what about you, Ben? You're an engineer. You have a close kinship with items, devices, uh, and AI-powered uh, things, doodads, doohickeys, and even dingle hoppers. So how did you feel about this movie? Well, first of all, I've got a bone to pick already with Denon. Clearly, the creature going with the Mitchells was either a pig or a loaf of bread, uh, not a dog. Uh, I don't know what he was seeing there, but uh, beyond that, I just love the idea of, uh, you know, robots, uh, you know, robots are our friends and, you know, maybe we, you know, we just need a more benevolent 
overseer of them. And I don't see how this could have how the world couldn't be better with this. Uh, we just need better tech bros uh, in Silicon Valley to get things up and running. Well, I, you know, Denon, I'm a little worried here because you and I both know that our enigmatic engineer is possibly an evil engineer. And I'm starting to worry that our evil engineer is actually a robotic engineer. An engineered <laughs> engineer is what I'm worried about here. Um, but, you know, speaking of engineered engineers, you know, the machine apocalypse is what this movie is about. And you're right, Denon, you know, this is kind of a fun way to get into the apocalypse. But the first thing that I need to clarify right off the bat is, you know, you said machine apocalypse. I've been calling this the robot apocalypse or the robocalypse for years now, and I feel like that's probably a more accurate term than the machine apocalypse. I'm going to go with robocalypse, and I do like your connections, the parallels with our Resident Evil episode on the zombie apocalypse. I think there are some very there is a very telling parallels here, as I mentioned, um, but also what I loved about this, and I want to get into this right away, is that... As you mentioned, this is a very unique take on the machine apocalypse. This is about not AI wanting to destroy humanity because of our faults or because we're in the way or because they want to take over. This is about an AI that gets butt hurt for being thrown away, for being superseded by superior technology, being usurped from their position of power. Uh, and basically, AI wants revenge. And the fact that this AI wants revenge says that it's developed emotions. And I think this is very interesting to me. Um, ben, as, as a robot who's developed emotions yourself, I think so at least, how did you feel about this part in the movie? Yeah, so it's really interesting trying to give an AI a feeling like that. Uh, you know, one thing about AIs right now is we kind of understand, we know a lot about how to make them, but we don't always know a lot about how they end up making their decisions. Uh, this is kind of a hallmark of the learning AIs when it comes to like AIs that learn how to like play chess or play checkers or all these other kind of, well, checkers is a solved game, so not checkers, but you know, chess and go and things like that. These machines uh, often learn very complicated algorithms on their own, and we don't really know how they work. So they're making decisions without us really knowing how they're making these decisions. And that does raise some concern that, you know, if you don't know why the computer is deciding the thing it's it's deciding, you don't know what decision it might make uh, given a, an input you didn't expect, such as, you know, some tech bro throwing his phone away because he built a cool new robot. Uh, you know, an AI might really freak out uh, when something like that happens. And if you give it access to weapons or other things, it, it could maybe do something really bad. Well, you know, Ben just made me more nervous, Dan. I was feeling pretty good about AI until he reminded me that we don't always know what it's going to do or why it's going to do what it's going to do. That is kind of a scary element of it. Um, but it is, I think, part of this for me, not only is it kind of cool, the entree point in, Right, it, it 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 defies the usual tropes of why the the machines and the robots and AI rebel. Um, this is a rebellion over hurt feelings. I also find it cool that the AI itself, whenever somebody tries to um, you know win it back over and have victory, you know the AI goes, "Oh, don't tell me it's the whole love and love will win over everything." Right, as much as I am 
a huge fan that love will win over everything, Dan. I respected the fact that the robot, the AI, knew its history, knew its literature, and knew that was the card we always played and was ready to counter the love card. (laughs) Well, I think that that AI needs a digital therapist, if you ask me. I think that would have ended this whole thing. You know, I want to mention one thing you said, Ben, about checkers being a solved game. Now, I'm a chess man myself. Uh, Would you consider tic-tac-toe to be a solved game as well? Uh, Yes, tic-tac-toe is extremely solved. Uh, Almost any child... uh, can you know given a, an initial first move you can with certainty know uh that the game will have no winners because the solution of uh tic-tac-toe the optimal solution is always a cat's game where no one wins uh and there's always a way to get to that from any given starting position y- wow. you know dan I- i'm starting to suspect you may be right about uh ben and the ai thing <laughs> that that tic-tac-toe question seemed to have the ai response of almost throwing ben at initially but he came through and solved it so i don't know i don't know where we're going with this episode dan now i'm getting even more nervous I, you know, I, I was just going to say that sounded like exactly what a computer would say, Ben. That, that was really <laughs> impressive. Um, you know, and one of the other things, you know, that, that you guys mentioned that I thought was interesting is the predictability of AI. You know, we don't know what AI would do under those conditions. And I think that that's interesting because that shows the difference between the biological uh, the biological neural pathways, the way you know we can kind of predict behavior or at least attempt to predict behavior. And we've got entire scientific disciplines you know, dedicated to predicting human behavior and dog behavior as well. Um, now, both of those do have hiccups. Like they're, It's not 100%. <laughs> you can't always predict people or, or animals. Uh, but I think we're kind of along that, you know, we at least understand where they're coming from because we are biological entities. But I like this idea that because we are not digital, because we are not AI, that 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 makes them even more unpredictable, despite the fact that we programmed them ourselves. What do you think about that, Denon? Well, you know, I think, Dan, you got to an uh, interesting thing that Ben actually described pretty well, which is one of the fundamental difference between most AI and what I would call traditional computer program algorithms is that we actually purposely make the inside of it what you would call in science a black box. Right? When you program a strict algorithm in a computer, you know exactly what it's going to do for every input because you've written all the steps. You mm-hmm. give an input, you get an output. AI is specifically designed as a learning machine, a neural net, where it learns, you give it a bunch of inputs and it trains itself and it creates an internal mechanism for judging inputs and creating output. And because we don't know what that internal state is that it develops naturally, this is why it becomes somewhat unpredictable and is something we're actively studying and really raises these deep questions of will AI ever be conscious? Will AI ever have feelings? What does it mean to have feelings? But even without those deep philosophical things, I think Ben hit on the, the really the core and crux of this is we can't always predict what it gets. I heard a great talk on AI where the person said, the problem with AI is um, just because it gives us an answer, we generally don't know why it gave us that particular answer. <laughs> um, so if you're using it for like medical predictions, which is one of the big things we want to do, um, it can actually be very, very good at finding things like you know cancer signals and images and such better than humans at times. But since we don't know why it's getting it right or wrong, when it, we, when it gets it wrong, we're not always sure that it got it wrong because we don't know why it's giving us the answer we gave. And that's the challenge with AI. So it's really hmm. great, but it really we have some way to go to really understand it. Yeah, and Dan, I love how you're getting there about 
what's important is how you interpret the outputs and what outputs you give to the AI. If the AI has, you know, the the big red button for the nukes, that's really bad because you don't know if it's going to push that button on accident because of some <laughs> stupid uh, rule that it made up inside of its yeah. neural net. But if right. all it can do is, you know, flash a light that says maybe cancer, maybe not cancer, well, that's pretty safe. And that's, and then a, a human can interpret uh, those results and, and make a good decision with the help of the AI. So what's really important is what outputs you give the AI. If the, what the output the AI can do is text you and give you some cool information, you know, that's a safe way to use AI. If the AI can do something where it can actually affect real damage, uh, that's where you get into real dangers. Yeah, I would say we should probably keep the stakes low until we can predict the behavior of the AI. And I, I agree with you 100%, Ben. Um, not giving them the nuclear button or the nuclear code or the nuclear football, which I love that term. I think that's a good idea. We should keep it out of their hands. Um, but I do have to say, you know, when it comes to the AI in this particular movie, PAL, and also I should mention PAL unless I missed it, is not an acronym, which I found that to be very interesting because most times when you give a computer a name, it's usually an acronym. Um, I don't know if this was like personal assistant loves or, you know, I, I couldn't think of anything <laughs> anything good there. But what I loved about this, just to use the L there, is that, you know, Pal is a little bit of a psychopath in some ways. However, Pal has some very interesting ideas on how we treat cell phones. You know, the the AI goes on this whole rant about how, you know, we poke them in the face and we drop them in the toilet and we, you know, touch them with, with Cheeto-covered hands. And I thought to myself, this is exactly right. If that cell phone was alive, if this was Toy Story and not Mitchell's and the Machines, I could totally understand where this AI would have a big problem. And I know you understand that more than anyone else, Denon. Oh, yeah. And, and this is why I resisted a cell phone for a long time. No, actually, that's a lie. I do have my cell phone. Um, <laughs> and I'm really, really bad. And I think my cell phone gets back at me by purposely typing wrong letters in my text so that my kids <laughs> make fun of me. Um, I, I think that's a form of cell phone rebellion yep. um, based on what I've learned in this movie. Um, not me missing the keys. Um, it's clearly not my fault. Um, but yeah, it, it's an interesting twist. I really, I really love that sort of presentation of how we interact with technology. Um, there's so much in this movie uh, about that. And I wish I could remember it. I should have written it down, Dan. Um, but the, um, the guy who invents PAL at, at the end when they're sitting trapped in the box has a great quote about maybe unregulated pursuit of data um, in this extreme fashion was not his best idea ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think it's interesting. You know, you mentioned uh, I have a big problem with autocorrect. If we can't trust AI with autocorrect, we definitely can't trust them with a nuclear bomb. Uh, and I, I think you can understand that, Ben. Well, I like that. I love that you guys brought up autocorrect because that's a that's a great example of AI. A lot of these keyboards actually in cell phones do have learn somewhat learning algorithms where they're trying to understand the biases of how your fingers touch the screen. Uh, it you know most people aren't actually very good at hitting the center of every uh, key, and so there's a lot of learning in terms of what words you use and your bias towards the right and the left and up and down of how you press the keys that these key, uh, keyboard software have to learn. And you know they're not always that great. And you know this is a great example of how an AI can really uh, mess you up uh, by making you look dumb or putting the wrong word into your messages. <laughs> it's, it's very passive aggressive. I like that better than regular aggressive. So, so Ben, to get around the autocorrect, you know, I imagine you don't have a problem with this. Do you just plug the keyboard right into your neck to the USB port there? Is that how you get, get by, by this? You know, someday that would be the hope, but uh, uh, in, in, 
it could actually be exactly the same problem. Uh, you know, if you imagine a, a brain interface that you're trying to, you know, text with, uh, you could have exactly the same problem where, you know, your brain isn't able to really send A, B, C, et cetera, directly to the phone. It's going to be this kind of cloud of electrical signals that some AI is going to have to interpret Uh to, to figure out what kind of words you're trying to say. And it, you're going to have exactly the same problem. And we're going to have to build some very advanced AI algorithms to interpret your thoughts to and turn that into your text messages. I just love, I don't know if you guys remember the TV show Small Wonder. Uh, when I, I imagined Ben sticking it into a USB port in his neck, I was like, oh, it's kind of like Vicky the Robot. Uh, but Vicky <laughs> stood for something. And I love, I can't remember the algorithm or the, the acronym. I'm going to put it on our social media. I'm going to find out what Vicky stood for. Uh, but, you know, speaking of plugging things in, what I like is there's this there's this moment in the movie where they talk about how all of the, they, they end up in a mall. And all of their, I think they're in a toy store and there's a lot of other devices around. And they all have a, a sign that says, pal chip installed. And this is very similar to our automated customer service episode we did, the uh, uh, Love, Death and Robots, um, because it's the Internet of Things. And they all are, you know, in unison, you know, they have a coordinated attack against the humans and they require analog weapons to destroy them. I love this part. And Denon, I know analog weapons are your specialty, including the bow and arrow. Oh, yeah, this was this was what like sealed the movie for me. I was so excited going in. And then the fact that they actually pulled out a bow and arrow, which we all know is the best apocalypse weapon. You want to have it with you. It's why I took up archery during the pandemic. Um, I don't know what that says about what my concerns and worries were. Yeah. <laughs> I think humans were the concern there, not machines or, uh, or zombies, but go ahead. Yeah, But I, I was really impressed at how well, I mean, I think it was pretty accurate how well the arrows were working. Um, I don't know that this would be shatterproof glass or bulletproof glass designed into these um, devices, and a lot of them were smaller. Um, and we do know uh, the great thing about the bow and arrow, it's a distance weapon, and you can recover your arrows, you can make new ones. Um, it really allowed us to bring in the father's strengths as an outdoorsman, you know, mm -hmm. and what he brought to the family as his strengths. Um, and then there was the, you know, interesting physics problem of, of trapping the giant Furby in a trap and um, getting the correct counterweight. Um, that was just a fun moment to watch as the family came together um, <laughs> to generate enough mass. Um, even then, I feel like they, you know, looking at the size of that Furby, they probably still were a little short. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that that really would have worked in the end. Um, but a lot of good gear-based technology, Dan, mm -hmm. um, in, in, in that moment as they start to recover. Uh, ben, which, which was your favorite engineered uh, defense mechanism here? Well, I, first I got to say, if the Furby's anything like, uh, you know, birds, uh, you know, birds are like all air, you know, it's all fluff. You know, if you ever <laughs> right. look at a plucked uh, owl, there, there's nothing really there. So maybe... Maybe that's what's going on with the giant Furby. You know, a the computer owl. you need for... <laughs> that's so random. I love that. A plucked owl. Are they lighter than most birds? Uh, all, all birds are very light, surprisingly. <laughs> like a bird, you know, a giant owl still only weighs maybe a few pounds, if that. You know, huh. it, it's all fluff. Uh <laughs> Because a bird, you know, birds are birds have to fly, and flying is very difficult if you weigh anything significant. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it's surprising how light uh, birds are, especially raptors. You know, you look at these giant like eagles and hawks, and then if you look up their weights, it's like nothing. It's like you know, you have this two, three foot bird, wingspan bird, and it maybe weighs a couple of pounds, if that. Uh, yeah. So, but, so I expect the Furby would be the same because you know th this giant Furby didn't really seem more intelligent 
than any of the regular Furbies. So I'm guessing it was a lot of air inside of there. Maybe maybe some foam to give it some structure, right? <laughs> ah, <laughs> I like that, Ben. You beat me to the foam. Good job. <laughs> the foam Furby. I like that. That will yeah. Well, I felt, you know, I've always been an HP Lovecraft fan, and that scene with that giant Furby seemed very Lovecraftian. Uh, he kind of comes out of the shadows here and summon, you know, the, the small one summon the large one. You know, I kind of yes. like that story. But there's this kind of this cool moment in, you know, in that in that particular scene where the where Katie, uh, the daughter, is trying to upload the kill code to, uh, you know, kind of end the machine. Uh, the, um, gee, I almost did it myself. The Robocalypse. Almost tried to end <laughs> the Robocalypse. Uh, but, you know, what happens there? She's uploading it to the Wi-Fi. But then they have to shut down the Wi-Fi to, to eliminate the, the most immediate threat, which is this Internet of Things, the Furbies, the washing machines, and all the other things coming at them. And by doing that, she can't upload the code to uh, you know to the mainframe and then end this robocalypse. And I really like that because it's this juxtaposition of needing technology but also fearing technology. Uh, you know, it's kind of this idea of everything in moderation. We need to use things and live in harmony. And I think this is a lesson for every both you know human and machine kind. Wouldn't you agree, Denon? Oh, I would. Um, that was a really interesting balance. I like how you did that, Dan. I do have a question about that moment, though. Um, it seems like in this world, the only thing that exists is Wi-Fi, not cellular networks. So I'm really wondering what happened to that, because we could have used the cellular network to upload the data, I, I, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just assuming that, or suddenly make a hotspot out of your phone. However, they had smashed all their phones, and maybe that was the problem. The dad smashed the phones to avoid the technology. Um, this is why you want to carry a backup, I guess, you know, not smart but cellular activated phone that can be just a hotspot for yourself or one of those portable hotspots, um, you know, as a future um, defense in the apocalypse. But yeah, that is that interesting balance, Dan. I like how you did that. Um, ben, which side were you on with the Wi Fi here? Would you happy that it went off, or did you want to keep it on? Uh, well, you know. Honestly, I think they could have survived for another two percent. Uh, I think I think they kind of jumped the gun in yeah, uh, that's a good it, point. with the laser Furby. Uh, you know, maybe they could have waited, you know, a couple more seconds uh, to finish the upload, and everything would have just been fine. And you know, the movie would have ended right there. Well, if my memory is correct, actually, I believe they accidentally shut off the Wi-Fi and just prematurely celebrated. Right, I think that laser from the Furby was not planned in my recollection. We may have to go back to the tape and replay that and post on social media. No, th that's absolutely correct. They accidentally destroyed the Wi-Fi. But you know, if, if this Furby is firing this giant death laser, uh, you know, watch out where it's uh, where it's going. You know. Uh, <laughs> Guys, you're using the Wi-Fi. Be, be, be careful here. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, they were, you know, they were the means of their own destruction, which is also a great little theme that we could get into as well. Um, but, you know, the, the next evolution, you know, we, we it's we, you know, we're talking about the AI um, and then we're talking about chips that are powering individual devices. But then we've got the PAL Max, which is the next evolution. So these are the robot, the helper robots that are supposed to replace PAL, the AI, but it's also the next evolution past, you know, regular devices that have been upgraded with a chip. Um, you know, and I, I really like these guys, especially the two that become good guys later on. They're, they're really cute. And I feel like these guys have, with the right programming, helper robots would be really cool. Two things I liked about them that I want to mention right off the bat. They kind of had this very Mega Man feel. They, you know, they have that, that, that blaster beam for a hand. You know, I really like that, which is also a tractor beam. Uh, you know, I, I really like that, despite 
despite the fact that they were using that tractor beam to move cars around, to smash humans, and to trap them, you know, used for good, I feel like these robots might have been an okay thing. You know, Ben, as our robot advocate, what did you feel about them? I really like these robots in that, you know, I think I think there could be a lot of good from having extra hands in keeping our city, our cities and homes clean. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of tasks where, you know, I could really use a robot to help me dust my apartment. You know, the dust is always collecting. I live in the city where it's it's kind of dirty. Uh, it'd be really nice if uh, you know there's just a robot to kind of help me out there uh, and keep and keep things nice and clean. Uh, so I think we could really benefit from this. Uh, you know, no one likes folding laundry. Uh, well, you know, maybe some people do, you know, you can get a little satisfaction, I suppose, from that, that order that comes from it, but you know, it's a time waster and, and there's better things we can do with our lives. Uh, so I think, I think these robots could really benefit society as long as they, uh, couldn't go on a rampage for murderous AI. Well, you know, I, I do think, Ben, one of the things, Dan, we, we don't often get too much into um, deep social commentary. We do get into philosophical ones. My, my brief social commentary is I'm still waiting for when we actually get more leisure time, right? Uh, <laughs> the powers that be keep telling us that technology and computers and such are giving us more free time. Um, as far as I can tell, the better computers get the more my time gets sucked into the computer, not the less time. Um, the more I spend on email, the more I spend trying to get the printer to work, the more I spend trying to get uh, other things to go. So I, I look at these and hope this is finally that technology breakthrough that gives me leisure time. That would be my hope. That would be my dream for these. Um, and, and maybe they could pull it off. I also, like you, love the two that turn out to be good guys. I think my favorite thing is that they draw expressions on their face. Um, I don't know what to make with that, but it's, again, very analog. Um, I, I loved I loved that that touch um, for their for their sake. Yeah, that, that was really interesting to me that, you know, they, they clearly have a screen back there that they can, you know, show icons and stuff. I was kind of surprised that they couldn't show a face on that. You know, if I, if I was building a helper robot, uh, one thing we've learned a lot from uh, from robot technology is that if you anthropomorphize the robot, and one of the best ways uh, you can really benefit the people who interact with it. And so it, it was kind of shocking to me that these robots didn't have a built-in face uh, algorithm for displaying a face on their on their heads because you know you're making the robot look like a person. I don't understand why they didn't go one more step and have it be able to display a face. Well, that's a good point. There's a lot of research that's been done that shows that even, you know, physical contact with a robot, you develops a connection with it. Having a face on a robot makes it feel, uh, you know, you, humans are more comfortable with them. So I completely agree with you, Ben. Uh, and as far as the leisure time, you know, we did a whole episode on the Jetsons, uh, you know, and that's, you know, you got Rosie the robot who's helping around in the house. She's not murderous as far as that I know. And she dusts as well. And I feel like we could all benefit from a little bit of that. But I've got, you know, I've got something very exciting to tell you guys, because, you know, I'm I'm doing research up to the minute. I don't know if you guys know that, but 15 minutes before we started recording this episode, I stumbled across a great article uh, about a company called Nightscope. I'm going to put the link up on the website. And they are the major manufacturer of autonomous policing robots. Uh, and they're used to predict and prevent crime. Now, they don't have a tractor beam, so I was, very, I was very disappointed in that. But they do have a video camera, a license plate reader, a thermal scanning camera, and a mobile, mobile phone 
drone scanning uh, device. And there's even one in Huntington Beach, California. The three of us could go down there and check this thing out. Uh, now, I want to tell you, I want to finish with this one little anecdote that I thought was funny from the article, is that in Huntington Beach, in that particular robot, there was an incident where someone, you know, the, the, the police robot was patrolling a park and someone, you know, was trying to stop a fist fight. They ran up to the robot, hit the emergency button. Nothing happened. They kept hitting, hitting, hitting. Nothing happened. Turns out that the emergency button was not connected to the police station. So I feel like that should be the first thing that you connect before you power, or at least the second after you power it up. But I love this idea, and this made me think of these robots and the benefits you could have with them. What do you think about that, Denon? No, I do like that. And it's going to be an interesting thing. We're just going to have to figure this out um, and make sure it works, because I, I, I saw a great talk. You know, you can try and decide to have a world without AI, but that's probably not going to happen. Um, it's probably here to stay. Um, and we, we're just going to have to make it work right. I mean, despite all the potential problems and challenges with it, um, this is why research into AI is so critical at this point. Um, we know AI, you know, um, can make some mistakes, which is, you know, one of the wonderful things in um, this movie where, you know, Ben already alluded to it. The best AI defense mechanism is the dog um, because of the mistakes that can be made, um, you know, dog, uh, dog, pig, bread, right? Or, you know, um, is a classic problem for AI. Um, so th there's a lot there. You'd hate to have that police robot um, making those mistakes on patrol. No, that's true. And, and you know, an itch there's an itching article. I'm glad you led to that. I got another article that I'm going to link to. This one's from 2017, but it's just what you said. These guys uh, created a 3D printed turtle that was designed to fool uh, this Google Google Vision algorithm. Uh, and it's a, you know, it's a thing called adversarial images, where you can take these images and it fools AI. And another example they give is a, a picture of a cat head and face Face on, the computer recognizes it as guacamole, and you tip it to the side, and it recognize, recognizes it at a, as, a, as a cat. And I couldn't help but think of the connection between the AI seeing Manchi and seeing, you know, dog, pig, or loaf of bread. I, I love that. And that also includes, you know, that, that thing that we always talk about in this show, where you have this paradoxical question or an algorithm buster uh, that shorts out AI and fries it and flips around. And this is clearly present in this movie. Uh, and Ben, I know you love this, probably to prevent event frying of your own motherboard. <laughs> I love that you brought up this uh, real world example of the computer algorithm that thinks a cat is guacamole. Uh, it just goes to show what we talk about here that these AIs, we don't really know how they work. And, you know, no one, no real human would make the mistake of thinking a cat is guacamole. But an, uh, an algorithm, a black box training trained algorithm you have no idea what how it's making its decisions now how guacamole a green thing is uh, is decided to be a cat which is never green you know that that's an interesting uh, failure mode there but that just goes to show you how the how weird these uh, algorithms can get and so it's really a good way to see how we um how these computers can really get fooled and delayed by these goofy things. You know, if if you have an AI, say, inspecting food to see if it's safe to eat, um, you know, it could have a real problem and really shut down a line if it all of a sudden, you know, it's checking peanuts for, you know, shell fragments and all of a sudden it thinks there's guacamole on the line. You know, <laughs> that's a problem and it would really, sh you know, could really shut down some serious machinery. So, you know, we, we got to work out these kinks. Uh, 
and figure out how to fix them. <laughs> or, or we could just get guacamole with our peanuts. And that would, I don't know, that, that, that's sounding strangely delicious, if a bit bizarre. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to bring up a 30-year-old joke here, but I was just talking to uh, one of our fans on social media, and we were talking about cats. And there is one there is one character in television history who would think a cat is guacamole, and that is Alf from the 80s sitcom. Uh, he loved to eat cats and put them on his bread. Uh, but so, you know, besides that, you know, I think that there are some problems that we have to overcome if we want AI to be all right. But I'll tell you what, I don't know that I want AI to be that accurate in uh, facial recognition or item recognition, to be perfectly honest with you, um, because what I don't want them is to track me down and put me into an electronic energy cage, which is what we see. These these PAL Max robots, they run around and they start putting all the humans into these little honeycomb-shaped cages. You know, what's kind of interesting is they start out as an energy disk, but then they become a full-sized honeycomb shape. Uh, you know, I, I thought this was pretty interesting. Now, the the ambitious plan to enslave the entire human race and blast them off into space, that's probably a little much. Uh, but Ben, I know you've been working this out. I Hopefully not for your own devices, you know, hopefully not for your own world domination plans, but I know you've taken a very close look at this. What'd you find? Yeah, well, so first of all, I, I, enslave seems like the wrong word. They're really just uh, giving them a nice, comfortable Wi-Fi experience. Uh, I, You know, I don't see any problem with that, but... Uh, <laughs> The problem, I, the thing I do worry about is if you, you know, they tell us how tall these structures are. They tell the, us they're 128 stories. And if you, you know, if you do some triangle solving, you figure out that these structures would have to be 100 miles thick to actually have a billion people in them if there's really only seven of them all across the world. Uh, and clearly in the movie, they're not 100 miles thick. They're maybe a couple hundred feet thick. So that that makes me question, you know, are they stuffing hundreds of thousands of people into each cube in the into each uh, hexagon in the inner layers that we don't get to see? You know, are maybe you know is is this the new uh, horrible definition of uh, you know coach flight like we see on the airplanes where you're <laughs> crammed in with a hundred thousand people into a tiny little uh, box? Yeah, don't start giving uh, our airlines you know, <laughs> any ideas here. <laughs> yeah, we're very close. Uh, otherwise, I don't see how this uh, sizing works out. Uh, you know, th that's a big problem. <laughs> no, you're right, Ben. This is this is this is a huge problem for this, which makes me wonder if the plan really is to get rid of all humanity or just the humanity that's, you know, viewed as a threat to AI. Um, it, it is interesting. There's also maybe uh, maybe it's only to get rid of Wi-Fi addicted humanity. As you alluded to, I think it's amazing that the lure to get people in is free Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. um, I, at first I thought, oh, how silly. And then I realized, um, you know, my, some of my trips to Europe um, in in the transitional period, I got so excited when I went into an area with free Wi-Fi and I would stay and that's where I'd be a tourist. So I think that's already been used by Europe um, to, <laughs> to get tourists into certain places. So I think it's an existing strategy as far as I can tell. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting to think that they want to keep all of, you know, only seven of these structures around the planet. That's, you know, also an ambitious plan because blasting off seven billion people, you know, a billion people uh, in a single rocket, I imagine is very difficult. Uh, ben, what, what, what's the numbers on that? Well, I actually think this one is easy because we already see the pods can float uh, without any means of propulsion. And so, any obvious means of propulsion. I mean, obviously, there's tractor beams and stuff in these PAL robots. So clearly, they have have some sort of gravity manipulation thing worked out here. So, you know, these rockets don't actually have to lift the people or the pods up to space. Uh, the pods can do that for them. So once, the, once they kind of break atmosphere, I think you, can, you just need a little 
push, if that, you know, maybe these things even work out of atmosphere and they can just kind of float away. And uh, that part's not a big deal, uh, thankfully, because if you actually had to build a rocket, you know, a, a normal rocket can launch maybe two to 300 people uh, without the pods. Mm. Uh, so, you know, th that's a lot of rockets to launch 7 billion people uh, by our primitive technology. So I don't know how that would uh, work, <laughs> you know. In a billion people in one rocket. That's a really, really, really big rocket. <laughs> you know, Ben, it's really interesting that you mentioned that they already float. It made me realize that this AI, even though we don't know how to predict what it's going to do, does something very interesting. It makes the classic human flaw of having an overly complicated plan and gloating. Um, because all it really needed to do, if it just wanted to get humans into space, is float the individual pods to space. There was no need to gather them in seven spaces um, and gloat about doing this. Just send them off to space in the floaty pods, right? <laughs> um, what does it care? Um, so I think the AI has more of a human component than we first gave it credit to. It has the human flaw of gloating over its overly complicated plan. <laughs> well, I think that that's really true. And I do want to mention one other thing here because, you know, this is a, an overly complicated plan. Plan. But the one thing that I thought was really interesting is the super simple plan where when they're going to save humanity, the Mitchells camouflage their car as the road. I thought this was absolutely brilliant. And it made me think, uh, you know, back when I was studying World War II history or World War One history, they had a whole thing called dazzle camouflage. And this is where battleships, to prevent being shot down by the German U-boats, primitive submarines, they put these strange camouflage all over, you know, it's basically geometric shapes, black and white, all over their battleships. And I'm going to put a whole link to this on the website. I just found this very fascinating and brilliant in this very low tech way. Uh, ben, what did you think about this? I know you like to over-engineer things, but what do you think about this from the simplicity, the beauty and art, art in the simplicity of it? No, I, I like that a lot. I mean, it goes back to the image uh, processing algorithms we've been talking about the whole episode where, you know, if, if, you, if your car looks like the road and you know the robots are above you, uh, you know, the robots just aren't going to see you and, and you're going to get away. Now, I think it was maybe a mistake to have the lines on the car. Uh, and drive in the middle of the road, you know, you're going to see the, the lines aren't going to line up and you're going to get that artifact. I think it would have been better if they just uh, covered the car in uh, tarmac uh, looking stuff. That way they could just stay in a lane uh, and also follow the rules of the road. You know, even in the apocalypse, you know, we should uh, we should uh, drive properly. Or that must be maintained. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that that's I think that that's right. And I do want to mention. I'm curious what you think, Denon. But before uh, before I do, I've got to give you one more piece of information, and that is that camouflage artist. There's a name for them. And they're called camoufleurs. And, and I love the fact that that's the word and that they have a name. Do you consider yourself a camoufleur? Yeah, unfortunately not. I, I'm very visible, Dan. <laughs> and, I get, and I get seen quite easily. Apparently, my biggest weakness is my voice. It gets recognized right away. I would need to camouflage my voice. Um, I, I did love the car thing. I think my, my only thing, Ben, I, I'll question a little bit. I understand your desire to follow the rules of the road. But my sense is um, during the apocalypse... The, the lanes are going to be clogged with empty cars. And so the challenge will be that you're going to have to weave into the middle regularly. So I think, actually, they had to commit to the middle-of-the-road mm. situation. 
Um, so they might have had to go a little more high tech if they could have had um, a series of iPads on the top of their car to turn the stripe on and off um, <laughs> as they weaved in and out of traffic. Um, that might have been the next evolution of this camouflage. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about active camouflage before where you have like a screen projecting what's behind. That would be best uh, because... You know, if it looked like they had like double yellows painted on the roof, but there are going to be times when they're over, uh, you know, dashed white lines or, you know, solid white lines. And that's just going to that's going to get them caught right away. Yeah. And if you want more on active camouflage, you know, we did a whole episode on Predator, which you guys should check out. I'll put a link in, in our description as well. Uh, the last thing we got to mention here, this is one thing that kind of blew my mind. It wasn't high tech. It was very low tech. But, you know, um, uh, Papa Mitchell, I forget his name. I don't have it handy. Uh, but he w is obsessed with the Robertson head screwdriver. I didn't know what that was. I looked it up. And what I realized is that there are hundreds of screw heads. I was only familiar with the Phillips and the flathead. Uh, I'm a rube. I I'm a novice. I'm a noob when it comes to uh, screwdriver heads. I love this. And also, you know, the Robertson is a square head, I should mention. And it is also called the Skrullux. That is its technical term. Ben, I know you got to use these bits all the time, you know, both at the macro and micro level. I'm sure you use teeny tiny ones when using circuit boards. What did you think? Of, what do you think about the Robertson head screwdriver? And where does it rank on your favorite top 10 list of screwdriver bits? Well, square heads are interesting. They're, they're rarely used in electronics, so that's that's an interesting choice. Uh, usually, electronics will tend towards like torques and torque security, or uh, for for companies that can afford to like have custom screw heads uh, made. Uh, you know, a, uh, a lot of you know our very mass-produced consumer electronics will use like triangle bits or other weird shapes, uh, five-sided bits. Uh, just to throw people off uh, so that it takes them a while to be able to open the devices. So I'm, I'm I, you know, that is one kudos to PAL that they're actually using a standard bit for the electronics and giving a nod to, uh, to, uh, to consumer usability because a lot of these companies uh, don't care about that and want to keep the consumers out of their devices. So I like that. <laughs> you know, one of the things that strikes me in this, Dan, is that you have this very, very simplistic security system that you design a screwdriver that someone doesn't, a screw that somebody doesn't have a screwdriver for and they're stuck. Um, it, it's kind of like, I'm not sure why that's not in more movies where you go to break into something and, and the guy's like, oh, shoot, I don't have the right screwdriver. Well, I guess I'm going home. You know, and I think that that's perfect, Denon. It's an analog security system. I love it. I agree with you. I don't know why this isn't used much more. Um, you know, we've arrived at our errors, additions, and omissions section. This is things we wanted to talk about, but we didn't quite get to. Denon, did you have anything you wanted to mention about Mitchell's versus the machines? Well, I think I'm going to go in a very surprising direction here, Dan, something that's a, a personal pet peeve of mine that I don't think I've gotten to share on this show before. And, and, and bear with me for just a second. Um, two of my absolute favorite stories in all time are Christmas Carol, particularly the Muppets version, um, and uh, How the Grinch stole, stole Christmas. And my pet peeve is that the word Scrooge and Grinch um, have come to mean the characters at the beginning of the book, not after they change. And so I feel humans do not accept change. Um, they're not into it. And this movie was all about change. The Mitchells win because they showed they could change as a family. And the two robots that got were their friends and got sucked back in said, 
if even you all can change, we can change. And they came and helped him at the end. This movie was fundamentally a nod to the great Charles Dickens and change and how people who improve. I don't think anyone saw that connection coming, and I'm sticking with it. Oh, I, I definitely didn't. Uh, and I am one of those people who uses Grinch and uh, Scrooge in, in what, I guess what you would deem the incorrect way. I think they're more unique at the beginning when they are the jerks. Uh, and that's definitely what they're known for. Uh, but what about you, Ben? Someone who's not known as an Ebenezer Scrooge or a Grinch. How did you feel about Denon's theory? And also, is there anything that we missed that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, well, I think the, I think the main thesis of this show or this movie is that uh, people need to uh, communicate better. You know, the, the family isn't communicating well at first, and that leads to problems with their planning and uh, survival. And uh, Mark, the tech bro, isn't talking to his assistant. You know, he's created this AI that is very intelligent and is a thinking, living, uh, emoting being, and he doesn't listen to it. He just takes it for granted. Uh, you know, if, if we're going to avoid the apocalypse, you know, we got to have good communication. That's really the key to avoiding the apocalypse, uh, both in our world and this fictional world. Well, I mean, you guys really went broad, you know, almost yeah, almost Shakespearean themes we're talking about here. I mean, you guys really went to to the to the English class for this. Uh, my oh, my errors, additions, and omissions section is twofold. Um, I love the movie Dial B for Burger. This is one of Katie's first movies uh, <laughs> in her journey to become a film director. And I loved Good Cop, Dog Cop. And my favorite line was, uh, you know, Munchie, Munchie as the cop saying, I love busting criminals and licking my butt. And I'm all done licking my butt. Uh, obviously, an homage <laughs> to Roddy Roddy Piper from They Live, also a great episode that we did, which is I'm here to kick ass and chew bubble gum, and I'm all out of bubble gum. Uh, it's cuter <laughs> when a dog says it, but I love the homage. Uh, we've got one more thing to do here before we end this episode, and that is we have, you know, we've got a great comment from one of our listeners. Uh, this one came to Denon directly. So, Denon, I'm going to let you take this one away. So we got a great comment, Dan, on our episode, The One I Love. Um, this was from a longtime listener and fan, probably our original fan, if I may say that, um, Kimberly Denon. Um, possibly no relation. A relation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no relation or possibly a relation. Yeah. But she really was curious because, you know, you went all in on your theory, Dan, about the mind and the way it went at the end. We had a lot of other explanations. But unlike what we normally do, we did not go with the pocket dimension. And she felt very strongly that this was a pocket dimension situation as you went in and out of the house. Um, computer tech detecting the person and, and selecting the correct pocket dimension. We've done pocket dimensions in other episodes like WandaVision and so on. I'm just curious... Uh, if either of you had a, a quick comment on the pocket dimension idea um, as that question came from our fan. I'd like to pop in first if I could. I just want to say uh, I had that written down and we didn't get into it in the episode, but I completely agree with Kimberly. I think that there's a lot of validity to the pocket dimension theory. Uh, it's not one that I went with. Obviously, I went with the, you know, to choose Ben's words, the superior theory, which is the uh, the one about being trapped in your mind. But I love it as a secondary explanation. And Ben, I feel like you might like this one as well. Yeah, I think of the they were in a real place explanations, it's probably the best one. Uh, because, you know, the bacon is still a problem and a pocket dimension really solves the bacon problem way better than uh, a lot of the other problems, <laughs> a lot of the other solutions. Which, which just goes to prove, Ben and Dan, that this movie hinges completely on bacon. 
Bacon is the entire core of that movie, and you are right. I think for real-world explanations to solve the bacon problem, we probably have to support our fan and go with the pocket dimension. No, I think you're right. And, of course, if you've got something you want to mail into the show, uh, I guess you can snail mail it in. I- I'm not going to give you my address, but I'd prefer it digitally. Uh, we've got social media. You can find the show on Twitter, at FGGGBTPod. It's on Facebook, at FGGGBT. And you can email. Please email. Don't snail mail. Email your questions to questions at ftriplegbt.com. But you can get in touch with individual members of the Brain Trust. And we'll start with Dr. Michael Denon. Where can people find you? Well, Dan, people can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Just flip my name. It's at Denon Michael. And then if you want to really get to me on Facebook, you got to stick a prof in there. It's at Prof Denon Michael. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at bseepser. How do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn, and on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. So with this movie, just like all the others, this contains a world domination plan, and the science we've explained can help you develop your world domination plan, but you don't want to do that. You don't want to take over the world. That's a, that's a task best left to supervillains, and of course, if you're listening to this show, you want to follow us and be superheroes. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, fgbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there fgbt.com and before you leave don't forget to check out our other episodes you can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio only version depending on what you like we got it for you and if you do like those videos you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well we're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn and once again if you like this show you're going to like everything that I do go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more thank you for listening